Welcome back to Against the Grain. This is Brittany, and this is the podcast that tries to get you to think a little differently, not just following social norms, but doing things because we think it's the right thing for ourselves. So today's episode, I want to talk about recycling. I definitely try to do my part uh, when it comes to recycling. I even have um, a thing at work where I will tell people when I see them throw away cans, if I pick it out of the trash, I'll tell them like, hey, if you just bring it to my office, I'll take it home and recycle it. Uh, We had a recycling bin at work and I used to work a lot of late nights and I noticed that the cleaning crew, they just toss out that recycling bin. It's just trash. So that's why I try to take it home and put it in the recycling bin instead to try not to put it in the landfill. But it, you know, with recycling, a lot of that happens anyway. And I want to get into that. I want to cover, you know, what is recycling And what can we do to better ourselves as an entire planet? So first, what is recycling? Recycling is the process of collecting and processing materials that would otherwise be thrown away as trash and turning them into new products. So to understand recycling, let's kind of just go through the the history really quick. The first recorded use of recycled paper was actually in 9th century Japan. Ancient Japanese began recycling paper almost as soon as they learned how to produce it. And recycling became part of paper production and consumption. Um, The Japanese culture generally, you know, treats recycled paper as being more precious than new. And... The recycled paper was often used in paintings and poetry. Here's a fun fact. In the 12th century, a case was recorded of an emperor's wife. After the emperor died, she recycled all the poems and letters she received from him and wrote a sutra on the recycled paper to wish peace upon his soul. So that was the first recorded use of recycled paper. So when did it reach the United States? So at the time, it wasn't quite the United States yet. So it wasn't until 1690 that recycling reached the New World. The Rittenhouse Mill in Philadelphia opened and they began to start recycling their linen and cotton rags. Uh, The paper that was produced from these materials was sold to printers for use in Bibles and newspapers. And then it takes more time for things to really start to develop. It wasn't really until World War II that we see this massive universal collection campaigns for tin, rubber, steel, paper, and so much more. And there was more than 400,000 volunteers in the effort and tens of thousands of tons of material recycled in order to save money for the war efforts. This became a national campaign. There was posters, newsreels. It was just detailing the materials needed and why. And then all Americans were on board and most were excited to help aid the troops by conserving and recycling. And then things didn't pick up more after that until around the 1960s. We start to see the first curbside collections of yard waste, metals, and paper 
you know, those start popping up around the country. Separate waste streams collected at the curb became commonplace. And then in the 1970s, there was a much greater emphasis on green movements through government-backed initiatives that generated public awareness of conservation efforts. There's the idea of the flower child. Earth Day is celebrated for the first time ever on April 22nd, 1970. Fun fact, my birthday is on Earth Day and Earth Day is one of my favorite holidays. Typically my tradition was to plant a tree every single year and this year I didn't have my house so I didn't have that opportunity but I did get a house plant so that was fun. <laughs> Another thing I did was I watched a documentary. The documentary was called the Year Earth Changed, and it streams on Apple TV+. Plus. It was such a good documentary. It was basically all of us shut up in quarantine and how the natural environment and other species actually, their life, you know, improved significantly. Like, humans we kind of lack respect for other species. We don't really care about them in their homes very much. But anyway, back to recycling. <laughs> okay, so after Earth Day, right, now there's this thing called the, quote-unquote, chasing arrows recycling symbol. Um, you know, that's created by a Southern California architecture student who was trying to win a contest, right? And it, obviously it stuck around. Also, the first curbside recycling bin called the quote-unquote tree saver is used in Missouri for the collection of paper in 1974. In 1976, Massachusetts, they secure their first ever EPA recycling grants. And with this grant money, they were able to implement weekly multi-material curbside collection programs in two cities and use the first ever residential recycling truck. So by the end of the 1970s decade, approximately 220 curbside collection programs are underway in the United States, about which 60 are multi-material collection. And in the 1980s, things began to accelerate further. So in 1987, the Mobro 4000, nicknamed the Garbage Barge, spends months on the ocean searching for a location to dispose of its garbage cargo. This saga was widely covered in the media at the time and has been credited with awakening Americans in regard to solid waste and the importance of recycling. You know, this is really the first time people are starting to see it in their face. And in that same year, New Jersey enacts the nation's first universal mandatory recycling law, which requires all residents to separate recyclables from their trash. I remember this happened to my grandparents um, because they lived on top of uh, a mountain in North Carolina. It was just in the middle of nowhere. So they were actually required to separate it. And then also they had to drive it down the mountain and go to the actual dump. <laughs> there was no garbage truck coming up there. <laughs> 
Um, it's a very humbling experience, by the way. I, I did that every summer um, where my family would go down. And we'd spend a week or two with them. It was a great time. I loved it. And I think that has become a big reason why I love being in nature because all I would do there was go exploring. I did not really stay in their house very much. They lived on acres and acres of land. Um, my aunt also lived up there and they didn't have very many neighbors. So basically that entire mountain was mine to roam and it was quite large. So, and it was all in the Smoky Mountains too. So it was super cool. Sometimes it would get really humid. If I was wearing glasses or something, they'd just be completely fogged up. <laughs> oh, such a fun time. Anyway, in the 1990s, all right, back to recycling. In the 1990s, the first ever statewide ban on landfilling recyclable materials goes into effect in Wisconsin in 1993. The ban initially prohibits yard waste in landfills, but then later in 1995, other items such as tires, aluminum containers, corrugated paper, foam polystyrene, plastic containers, and newspapers are banned as well. And then by 1995, America is at a 20% nationwide recycling participation, double what it had been 10 years ago in 1985. And then in only three years after that, by 1998, it tops 30%. So let's look at the 2000s to today. In the early 2000s, organic waste collection at the curb begins on the West Coast. It happens in San Francisco. Currently, goal setting for ambitious West Coast city reaches up to 80% recycling participation in some areas. In 2011, lawmakers in California, it would be California to do this, Adopt a goal to get the state's recycling rate to 75% by 2020. In 2012, McDonald's finally replaced their styrofoam cups with paper ones. In 2011, the state of California had set the goal for 75% by 2020. Only one year later, in 2012, San Francisco announces that it has reached an 80% diversion rate for its waste. That put San Francisco eight years ahead of its goal, plus 5%. It's crazy. As you can see, we've come quite a long way, especially in more recent years. But we still have a lot of work to do. So... I really want to imagine the next 10 to 20 years being way better, just exponentially better. Now I want to backtrack a little bit. Now that we've caught up, you know, how recycling really started to where we're at now. Because I think this is something that I find a little important. And in the late 1980s, the plastics industry was under fire. What happened was there was a, they were facing a heightened public concern about ever-increasing amounts of garbage. Um, so the image of plastics was falling dramatically. So state and local officials across the country were considering banning some kinds of plastics. 
in an effort to reduce waste and pollution. But the industry had a plan, a way to fend off plastic bans and keep its sales growing. It would publicly promote recycling as the solution to the waste crisis, despite internal industry doubts from almost the beginning that widespread plastic recycling could ever be economically viable. (laughs) Now, there was an interview where someone just quoted saying, there was never an enthusiastic belief that recycling was ultimately going to work in a significant way. This was said by Lewis Freeman. He's the former vice president of government affairs for what was then the industry's chief lobbying group, which was the Society of the Plastics Industry. The industry promoted recycling heavily anyway, counting on a simple strategy. And I quote, If the public thinks the recycling is working, then they're not going to be as concerned about the environment, says Larry Thomas. He formerly headed the Society of the Plastics Industry. So that's very disappointing that they kind of had that in mind and they were able to fool a lot of us. But now that we know this, we can still make improvements. It's never to feel bad about what has happened behind us. It is to figure out where we are now and then what can we do better? How are we going to improve? It is only at the time where we realize there's a problem and we don't do anything, we turn our head to it, that it becomes a problem. We're not progressing. We're not getting better. I'm all about self-improvement. I love this. I would rather do something that I find beneficial for me in a self-improvement way than watch TV or, or watch movies, something like that. So... When you take out the self-improvement part of it, it's hard for me to get behind that. So I may not be perfect, but each year I may, like during Earth Day, I'll be like, all right, well, I'm going to try to do this this year. So a couple years back, I got reusable produce bags. That was my one thing for that year that I was going to change. Another example was instead of having Ziploc bags, I got reusable silicone food grade bags. So I do encourage you guys to always focus on self-improvement. All right. So if you ask people to explain what happens to their waste after they throw it in the bin, almost no American is able to answer that. And that's because our perception of recycling in the United States and the realities of actual recycling do not match up. To be honest, plastic recycling is not economically viable in the United States. And it hasn't been for a long time. So what we were doing is we shipped our plastic waste to China. And at one point, China was buying 70% of the world's plastic. In 2011, plastic trash was America's primary export to China. Isn't that insane? In 2016, the world shipped 7.13 million tons of plastic. 
to China. But then what happened? China shut down its foreign recycling operation. Since then, we've been burning around 14% of the plastic we produce, six times more than we recycle. When U.S. recycling levels reach 75%, it will be the environmental and carbon dioxide equivalent of removing 55 million cars from U.S. roads each year. Also, when the U.S. recycling levels reach 75%, it will generate 1.5 million new jobs in the United States. And other things that can happen if we recycle. So if we recycle plastic, five plastic bottles recycled provides enough fiber to create one square foot of carpet or enough fiber fill to fill one ski jacket. Recycling one ton of plastic bottles saves the equivalent energy usage of a two-person household for one year. Now, let me put it in a different way. Uh, Americans throw away 2.5 million plastic bottles every hour. I talked about bottled water in my non-essential spending podcast episode. Still by far one of my favorite episodes. Where the average American spends almost $20 a month on bottled water. And I just... That doesn't make sense to me because the tap is so much cheaper. Um, It goes through a lot more testing than bottled water does. Bottled water, um, I swear I can taste the plastic sometimes. It's really gross. There's many, many reasons I try to avoid single-use plastic in water bottles. For the environmental impacts, just just for everything, really. You buy a nice filter, you spend less money... You don't have any waste, really, so really, guys, look into that if you're still buying bottled water. I beg you. Uh, Cans, like aluminum cans. So every three months, Americans throw enough aluminum landfills to build our nation's entire commercial air fleet. That's every three months. That's insane, guys. Wow. The average person has the opportunity to recycle more than 25,000 cans in a lifetime. Recycling a single aluminum can saves enough energy to power a TV for three hours. Just one. One aluminum can. It requires 95% less energy and water to recycle a can than it does to create a can from virgin materials. So this is how it can power a TV for three hours, right? Because you're not trying to produce an entirely new can, right? First, find the material, and then you have to process it. First, how do you find the material? Are you using heavy equipment? You know, there's a lot of costs associated with this that we don't take into account. But it's clear after all of that, that it's obvious recycling isn't working. We now know that. There's some great benefits to recycling, but we know that our system is still broken. So how can we fix it or make a greater impact, a positive impact? My suggestion are zero waste solutions. Try to avoid plastic in general. Take reusable bags to the grocery store. Buy in bulk. 
using your own reusable bag because there's no plastic packaging, you know, nothing really gets wasted at all, which is awesome. Ditch single-use straws and utensils. And then this is for the ladies. Ladies, get a menstrual cup, a reusable one. They are a literal game changer, and I promise you won't be disappointed. I've been using one for well over a year, and it's incredible. Like, zero leaks. We're talking, like, suction cupped in you. Like, nothing's coming out. It's perfect. <laughs> anyway, so sorry for all the males who had to hear that. <laughs> But if you do happen to buy something from a store, like say you get pasta sauce that comes in a glass jar, you know, try to use that glass jar for something else. Say you make oat milk or something in, in there and just put it in there, store it in that. The idea of Americans, they want everything to be so aesthetically pleasing and beautiful and they want to buy all new materials, right? They go to, they go to Home Goods, they go to a different store and they're like, oh, I like brand new, blah, blah, blah. When really you could use other things that maybe aren't as pretty, but they get the job done just the same. This is where we try to scale what we actually need. This can tie into so many things. Non-essential spending. It can tie into minimalism. It can tie into living below your means, right? Spending less money, getting out of debt, whatever. Food is a necessity and we can't get rid of all of our waste. I'm sure, but we can, we could do our best. And there's also a lot of companies that are coming out with, I don't know if you've seen the ads for these there, there's this thing where it's a box of toothpaste and they look like these little pellets and you pop one in your mouth and you start brushing that way. So there's no tube of toothpaste that looks super cool. Um, there's also instead of buying laundry detergent there's some that are these degradable they look like wipes really where you just toss it into the wash and that that is it using a lot less packaging um because a lot of times what happens with laundry detergent is it's mainly water so then there's also other companies where you can uh, buy a, a bottle of like their formula and then you just get replacements that you actually put in your own water. So they don't have to deal with the weight of shipping it. Um, you don't have to waste your time carrying that or buying a big thing of water or using extra plastic, right? They come in concentrated formulas where you mix that with water that you already have at home that's cheap. And then boom, you have your formula whenever you need it. That's something that my roommate and I do. Um, she has a bunch of cleaners that are concentrated formulas. So if we run out of dish soap, if we run out of hand soap, you know, we could easily refill it. It's always there, right? Cause it takes so long to go through it anyway. So it is really nice, but there's so many options for us to try to do a little more, but with most things, it requires us to go out of our way a little bit. So can you go against the grain and do your part for the environment? Or will we continue to keep turning a blind eye because it's out of sight, out of mind? We have no regard for our environment. 
we have no regard for other species. We take their homes. Humans are causing the sixth mass extinction. Humans have to be better. Yes, it makes our lives easier, but really, do you want to live a life like that? Do you want the easy life? Do you want the easy road? Or do you want something great? Because something great's going to take some work. And I really hope that more people start to care because this is something that I've cared about for so long. And even my mom makes comments sometimes about, oh yeah, uh, she forced us to all start recycling. It's like, yes, yes I did. It makes sense. Why would I not? And then I found out that a lot of things that get recycled, you know, end up in landfills still. And after I learned that, it was very saddening. But also, I'm like, okay, so then what do I do now? And I think zero waste is going to get us there. And I know not everyone's going to do it. But as long as I know I'm doing my part, and I try to promote that in different places that I go, like if I'm at work and they have beer cans or whatever for Beer Friday. Obviously, it's it's important to me. And I think it should be important for all of us, especially because, you know, I have a son and I like to go hiking. So when you're hiking, the idea is to leave it how you found it, right? I have this thing where I try to live my life, leave it better than you found it. And I want to try to do that for my own son because I know that he may try to have a kid one day. And I want other generations to be able to experience this life. I want to thank you guys for listening to Against the Grain. I know this was kind of a long episode, so if you did make it through, I do appreciate you. See ya!